0: Some people are attempting to revive the ancient practice of Stoicism for a modern world. And coming up on October 15th in New York City, there's a chance to learn more about ancient Stoicism, its modern practice, and its relationship to mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy at StoicOn 16. Speakers include author Ryan Holiday, philosophers Massimo Pigliucci and Julia Annas, and cognitive psychologist Debbie Joff. Ellis, and many more. If you'd like to learn more about how the ancient philosophy of Stoicism can help you flourish in modern life, consider attending Stoicon 16 in New York City. For more information and for tickets, search for Stoicon on Eventbrite or go to howtobeastoic.org s-t-o-i-c-o-n. the welcome to the you are not so smart podcast episode
1: 85 <laughs>
0: Our guest in this episode is Dr. Julia Shaw, a psychologist, a senior lecturer and researcher in the Department of Law and Social Sciences at London's South Bank University. She not only teaches classes on criminology and psychology, she also consults as an expert on criminal cases, and she writes for Scientific American for a column they have called Memory Mondays, where she talks all about how memory is, well, fallible and illusory and mostly fiction and how very easy it is to implant false memories in people's minds. In fact, the work that she did, which showed that you can easily convince someone that they committed a felony, even though they did not, you can get them to admit it, to believe that they have a real memory of doing something that would put them in jail is why she has the new book, called The Memory Illusion. It just came out, and I thought it would be great to replay her interview from last year. It was really great, and I think it would be interesting to go back through it and get ready for her new book, which just hit the shelves. So let's pick her brain. Okay. So, Julia, I think many of us believe that our memories are perfect recordings and snapshots, and they're locked away inside of our heads until we go digging for them, and then we pull them out and that we see them in, in perfect detail like they occurred. Um, what does science have to say about those sort of intuitions?
1: Well, certainly the notion of memory as a video camera or as a photograph uh, is, is incredibly prevailing. And memory has poked many, many holes into that notion suggesting that actually memory is largely uh, self-created, reconstructed, and has fiction built in almost automatically. So it's an incredibly malleable process.
0: So it's really open to distortion, and it's inaccurate. Are those, that's pretty, we can pretty much say that for sure at this point?
1: For sure. So the question has changed in the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, where memory researchers have stopped asking, what. how can we help people remember things? Or uh, how good is memory? It's how bad is memory? Slash, um, how malleable are things? So it's really looking for fallacies, looking for problems rather than looking for uh, how good it works because it's inherently not so good.
0: That's crazy because you know the. I think that when we think about ourselves, like you know, uh, we want to we, we start imagining our, our 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 very essence, our soul. We 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 look to our memories. I mean, our memories are what make us who we are. If you in science fiction, when it plays around with that concept, you know, you remake people by wiping their memory and letting them start over again. Um, the, you know, how, we, how trustworthy are uh, the memories that we cherish? Uh, like the, the, the story of who we are as a person, it, how as a scientist would you, um, do you view that the trustworthiness of that, that narrative that we construct out of our memories?
1: So the narrative, just because each and every one of our memories is prone to the same kinds of distortions, arguably, um, there's no reason for particularly emotional or particularly, as you call them, important life events to be preserved in any particularly different way. So they're equally prone to distortion. And that means that our personal narrative can be (laughs) and is largely fiction and is largely, as you said, uh, inceptionable, if you will. (laughs) Uh, where or people other people can go in there and add bits to your memories, you can go in there every time you recall it and add bits or change bits um, and I mean, from the very beginning, the way you look at the world is through a filter, and that filter continues and kind of like what what do you like what people sometimes like to say is the more often you tell a story, the better it gets. <laughs> so we embellish we add to it intentionally and unintentionally.
0: So, if you were like just uh, like a just a just a guess, just a, a spitball, a speculative um, um, thing here, I would like what percentage would you say of a typical person's memories are fictional?
1: hundred <laughs> uh, percent. Uh, is- a Controversial statement. But uh, Elizabeth Loftus, who's arguably the leading researcher in false memory research, uh, recently had a TED Talk and she said, all memory is essentially false. And it's, again, the, the statements or the type of statement we hear echoed throughout the literature right now. Um, and it's, it's a good enough principle. Its memory is good enough, evolutionary speaking. Just like everything else in our bodies, from our eyes to our stomachs to our muscles, um, memory is good enough to to survive. It's not perfect.
0: Well, that is uh, that's a little frightening. Uh, the uh, <laughs> like because I I've seen I've seen uh, I read somewhere a neuroscientist who said you know they <clears throat> they reasoned that it was maybe seventy percent of your memories were completely completely fictional and uh, And that scared me, but now you said a hundred percent, and I'm terrified.
1: I wouldn't say that they're completely fictional. I just say that elements of them are fictional,
0: all right, so it's a um highly embellished highly um uh rewritten to make us feel better about ourselves or to cover up the bad parts
1: not necessarily not necessarily to make us feel better. I mean, my research points at how we can embellish. Notions or or events create them out of nowhere, from nowhere. Um, that about very negative things, oh, yeah. so about committing crimes. So this does not have to be mean that it's always going to improve for the better. It just means it changes over time, and it can improve for the better, but it can also just become more extreme, more dramatic, or less dramatic.
0: <laughs> so I, uh, we'll get to your, your research uh, in just a second, but before that, you know what you're saying with the that of how our our memory is so malleable and that it's distorted in both a uh, positive and negative directions depending on how we've been uh what we've uh, interacted with if if we sort of have this metaphor that's been around for a while of the computer hard drive or the file or a filing cabinet um yeah. what would be your better metaphor for how memory works
1: uh, I not my metaphor I'm going to steal it what is it great great artist good artist copy great artist steal <laughs> right <laughs> Stealing from Beth Loftus again, she likes to compare it to a Wikipedia page. <laughs> so memory is like a Wikipedia page. You can go in there and change it, but so can other people. So it's That's the notion good. that it's, it's editable by yourself, by others, by anyone who has access to the internet, or in this case, by anyone who has access to your memory or to you.
0: And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. A few weeks back, my wife and I cooked a meal from Blue Apron over at my parents' house and we brought over all the ingredients that came in the mail. We made chicken meatloaf with mashed potatoes and green beans and it was phenomenal. I loved cooking with my mom, reading about the different ingredients off of the material that came with the recipe and the final product, it just, it was amazing. It fed the four of us no problem and over the next few days, we made Blue Apron tacos and pasta and catfish all at our house, all in ways I'd never had them with ingredients I'd never used before. Now I totally get why people Like Blue Apron so much, they ship fresh, high-quality, seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients that you can't find in grocery stores right to your house on a schedule that you set. And for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers them along with easy-to-read, full-color recipes with photos and additional information about where your food came from. Now, here's some of the meals that are available in September. Paprika Spice Shrimp and Cheddar Grits with tomato and sweet corn... (laughs) Spicy chicken stir-fry with baby bok choy and sesame ginger cucumber salad. Come on. Eggplant and chickpea tagine with islander pepper and tomato and couscous. Summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper. Come on. And look, here's the thing. If you would like three meals free with shipping, three free with shipping, go to blueapron.com slash a N S S you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with blue apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Y a N S S blue apron, a better way to cook. And now we return to our program. This is the, you are not so smart podcast. I'm David McCraney. Our guest is Dr. Julia Shaw, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. That's awesome. And so what does that mean for, um, I mean, we, a whole lot of our like civilization, the way we um, have tried to elevate ourselves above, uh, you know, primitive interactions is to have a legal system that slowly, you know, uh, uh, decides, you know, for us what is justice and, and keeps us from doing really um, you know, it keeps us away from vengeance and other weird things that we would do if we didn't have a sort of a a framework for justice. A lot of that hinges on eyewitness testimony. Um, mm-hmm. How, from uh, an expert on memory, an expert on the psychology and neuroscience of memory, how should we be treating eyewitness testimony in the legal system?
1: Well, the legal system. I mean, you point at justice, I mean, just the whole notion of justice is a whole nother point for discussion. Um, But of course, with with regards to this memory research, the foundation of law being largely, yeah, as you said, eyewitnesses and confessions and just memory accounts in general, victims as well. We like to forget that victims can have false memories. Um, So you can think you were the victim of a crime that never happened. You can think you committed a crime that never happened and you can see Think that you watched or heard a crime that never happened. So, at all levels, memory—this fallible memory, inherently fallible memory—is um, is going to have potential errors that are introduced automatically into the justice system. So, it's no surprise when we hear accounts that are dissimilar in many ways, or even completely conflicting. And that's not necessarily pointing to these people lying, but it could just be again these the way that memory stored, retrieved, and um, just distorted over time mm-hmm. confab
0: confabulation i love that word that's one of my favorite words <laughs> once that was added to my vocabulary i'll I drop it everywhere and it's um
1: except uh, that nobody knows what you're talking about <laughs> yes sir
0: could you uh what is your definition for confabulation
1: confabulation is when you generate details uh, about things that never happened in terms of memory, so for example, a confabulated detail would be maybe you don't actually remember the color of someone's sweater in the last time you saw them. Um, but then in your your mind you're you're confabulating a detail saying, "Oh, it was definitely red. It was definitely a red sweater so you're you're adding something and confabulated events, entire events can happen as well. so again, you can int- you can introduce a person I, this happens to be all the time. I have disputes with my friends and family about who was with me at certain events or outings or vacations even. And they'll say, oh, but Sue was there. And I'll go, no, she wasn't. And it'll be back and forth. And then we'll dig out some photos to see whether she was or wasn't <laughs> there. Um And this this happens on a regular basis, I find, with people where they disagree on entire people's presences. Um, That's a person you're putting into a memory or taking out. One or both of those accounts must be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um- so...
0: It, that's, yeah, that's such a common part of, that's such a weird part of our interaction as every human being experiences this, uh, several people getting together and remembering things differently. Right. And it's kind of strange that we don't, that we usually don't leave that and go, well, it's probably because I don't remember anything very well. And I, my memory is, on. <laughs> but you know, it's just like, oh, well, that was a quirky thing for that one event. And it's hard. It's weird that you, you don't really extrapolate it out to your entire life. Um, and there's a, absolutely. The science writer Robert Krolwich, uh tells a great story about he, his wife. Remembered uh, his he he tells a, a, he was telling a story to friends and family about how he uh, once saw a famous person on the street, and his wife revealed to him that she was the person that saw it. He was and he wasn't even there, and he completely confabulated this whole thing where he had stolen he basically stole another person's memory and was using it as his awesome story. Yeah, that um,
1: definitely happens regularly as well.
0: So confabulation, I guess it's sort of, it's lying, but you don't know you're lying. It's,
1: um... it's not lying. No, no, no. Okay, don't, okay, don't use okay. that term Sorry, ever, okay. oh, ever.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. Tell,
1: not uh, lying. Self-deception is uh, such a, oh, I reviewed a paper recently um, where they tried to equate self-deception, as they called it, to false memories. Now, the fundamental difference between deception and a false memory is that in deception, there's an inherent notion of Intent. So you're actively trying to distort something or trying to misrepresent something. In a false memory, you have no idea it's happening. So that's the difference is maybe in the origins of it, someone might have intent. So for example, me as a researcher might have intent to generate a false memory in you, or you might even have intent or desire to manipulate a memory. But once it's there, it's no longer a lie because it just becomes your reality. It becomes your memory. And so there's no intent involved anymore. That's good. So it's it's a not a point of contention that's overstatement, but there there is some disagreement in the literature as to it's even possible to self-deceive in that particular way, because you would always know that you're lying. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's just other issues around cognitive dissonance or other psychological mechanisms where we're trying to make sense of a discord between, for example, our actions and our thoughts or reality and our perceptions or whatever. But for false memory, it is definitely not deception
0: okay good i will I won't say that anymore lying it's not <laughs> it's not lie um, It is now that of, I've
1: reprimanded you thank you
0: i won't I will never do it again uh, <laughs> uh, although I think I actually wrote that down in, in one of my books, so I, now i'm I don't think I can get, go back and change it but uh when i, I
1: self-deception said self deception is.
0: Well, I said that confabulation was sort of a, it's sort of a, it's like lying without knowing that you're lying, but I, but I guess uh, a better way of putting it would be to describe the inten- the intentionality of what's going on, because uh, a lot of the confabulation that I've written about in the past were people who have certain, um, you know, physical problems with their actual brains that's causing yeah. them to, um, to. there's several weird phenomena that come out of that, uh, where people will will completely confabulate entire um you know experiences sometimes even you know denying their own disorders um and have there's they have zero knowledge or self-knowledge that they've done that they will even deny that they've done that so
1: right yeah um but again deception yeah it's it's just that intentionality i mean if you define deception in a different way then that that works but (laughs) i generally define it it doesn't work no you're (laughs) right
0: no you're right i'm wrong i think that's good um
1: I mean, there is an overlap in that it's, it's what's coming out of your mouth or what you're thinking about is different from reality. Mm-hmm. So in deception and in false memories, your whatever it is you're talking about as your memory is not a representation of reality. Um, so that's the same as deception.
0: And do um, so, this all these notions together. Uh... What, what, what we're going to talk about your research now cuz it's just amazing and um what was <laughs> Thank you. it is it's really it's really amazing and uh what is what was your um inspiration for uh putting together this 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 study and this research
1: the inspiration was well there's two inspirations first of all it had never been done so i started delving into the literature on false memory generation in a lab based environment and of criminal events in particular And there's a fair amount of talk about it within forensic psychology. But then I realized that there actually hadn't been an empirical demonstration in the lab. And that was sort of a piece that was missing in order to convince judges and jurors that this was actually a thing. Because a lot of the studies that we did have up until my research, or all of them, focused on you got lost in a mall when you were five, or you... Uh, got attacked by a dog when you were eight or when you were. So there, there were very young events. They were non criminal events that were being generated in these false memory studies. Um, and the ones that were more towards criminal were mostly case studies. So they'd examined post hoc through agencies like the Innocence Project. They, they'd examined cases and they'd found that false confessions were a leading cause of wrongful imprisonment. So there was these two pieces, but to me, they seemed a little bit disjointed still, and I wanted to put them together. And so I wanted to do a lab based recreation, recreation, (laughs) replication, um, of adolescent memories of committing crime.
0: And you know what, what I love about this and what's great about psychology, you know, is that being a young science, like you can, you can say, Oh, well this needs to be done. And then like, I mean, your, your research, uh, and you know, all this has to be replicated and torn apart for a couple of years, but it has the potential to really, really change the world, to change the way things are going to be done in the legal system. And, um, that's amazing. I'd like
1: to, I'd like to hope so. I'd like to think so.
0: That's what I mean, that's, inc- that's incredible. That's what science can do. Uh, and what psychological science can do. So, um, take us through, um, the study itself. What is, what was the procedure? What happened?
1: What was the procedure? So first of all, we had recruited participants for a screening phase. So the screening phase involved sending questionnaires about the potential participants to their primary caregivers. So our sample was mostly or exclusively university students. And these university students then signed up online. And 127 people gave us their parents' contact information. Those we then sent the questionnaires. And these questionnaires asked about various things that had happened to these potential participants during a specified timeframe. So between the ages of 10 and 18. And so what we wanted is, or what we needed was one true memory of an emotional event that had happened during this time frame, And we wanted to make sure that they hadn't experienced any of the target events as we called them. So the target events were the the false memories that we wanted to generate. And so there were six events, and we had to make sure that they'd never had any police contact, they'd never assaulted someone, et cetera. And so 70 people met the criteria, so met these criteria that they had experienced something emotional that we could talk about first, and they hadn't experienced the target events. And so what we did is we we got those people to come in. And those participants came in three times, each one week apart. And we would introduce the first memory when they came in after talking to them, establishing a little bit of rapport. And we'd say to them, so, because they knew that we'd contacted their parents, right? On the questionnaire that we sent to your parents, your parents said that when you were 15, you had a skiing accident. You were with your friend so-and-so, and you were in Switzerland when it happens." Can you tell us everything or can you tell me, not us, uh, me, everything you remember about the event from start to finish, trying to leave nothing out, no matter how trivial it may seem. Now, that's verbatim what we said, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then they tell us all about this true memory. And it it was relatively easy for most of them because, well, (laughs) it had actually happened. Um, And then we'd go through the structured questionnaire and everything. And then for the second event, we say, okay, your parents also gave us a second event And in this event, your parents reported that you had an incident where you were in contact with the police. Now, at this point, the participants started to, of course, look at us like, what incident with the police? Because, well, it had never happened (laughs) as they should. Right. They should act surprised that this is an account that we're telling them they experienced. Um, And then we did the same thing. So I then went ahead and said, so your parents said that when you were and then I picked an age between 11 and 14. Randomly, Uh, when you were 13, you assaulted someone with a weapon and the police called your parents. You were with, and then I'd insert, and this is key, I think, I'd insert a true detail. So their actual best friend, for example, at the time when they were 13 would be in this. So you were with your friend, Paul, and Paul was actually the best friend of this person. You were in their hometown. So it was the actual hometown of where they lived at the time. Um, And then tell me everything you remember from start to finish, trying to leave out nothing, no matter how trivial it may seem. So the same structure. But of course, here, they didn't have anything to say initially. And so then we said, "Okay, well, you can't remember this. Well, lots of people have trouble remembering. This is, in fact, an emotional memory study, which is how we had sold it. And in this emotional memory study, one of the things we wanted to look at, because we anticipated people to have trouble remembering at times, was retrieval methods. And so then we'd ask, "So would you like to try this this memory retrieval technique <laughs> wow. as if it was a choice, right? Right, right And of course, at this point, everyone's thinking, "I can't remember this event. Of course we're going to try this um, And then I'd mislead them and say, the majority of people who use this technique is a little bit of social pressure uh if they try hard enough, <laughs> they'll get the memory back. And what does that imply? That implies that if you're not you're not remembering the event because you're not trying hard enough, right so there's a lot
0: of and you, you like use a lot of these kind of, of techniques we uh, did yeah like definitely. I, you, you list some of them out and like some of the, they're so insidious there's like uh um th- most people are able to retrieve these if they try hard enough like you just said the uh, uh building rapport uh uh <laughs> long pregnant pauses where people <laughs> uh <laughs> the uh what else what else you list them all out in the study and they um I, I love the idea that, that there's all these different directions you're coming from, so all these different tactics because you're uh, motivated to get them to do this. And, it, you know, like a police uh, interrogator would would, would be – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep going.
1: Yeah, no worries. Um, definitely. So, yeah, we use all these different techniques. And so, as you said, we, we use pregnant <laughs> – it's amazing how much people will say if you don't say anything. Right, right. <laughs> So just to break a silence, people will give you more details. And then you're nodding and confirming, going, yeah, that really sounds like, that sounds correct. Um, Was actually really good for facilitating this this false information or this confabulation of details. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we would have the participants in front of us. We'd be using these what not to do for memory retrieval techniques. But of course, they didn't know that. I even use things like I it don't. <laughs> one of my lines for introducing this memory retrieval technique was, "I don't like to call it repression, but sometimes we push these memories to the side." <laughs> wow! Now repression, from an empirical stance, is is a highly questionable thing to begin with, right? But it's a term that these students, who are mostly psychology students, have heard before,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's some credibility associated. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Okay, yeah, good. So let's, let's try and uncover this, this possibly repressed memory. Um, so anyways, so then we'd go through this over three weeks. We do it every time. We'd always talk about their true memory, and then we'd go into the false memory. Mm-hmm. And first interview, I remember my very first detail that was ever generated by a participant. I'm about three, three or four participants in at this point. And there's a girl. She's got her eyes closed in front of me. And she's doing the visualization. So it's a context reinstatement is what we called this. And it's where you picture yourself at the age of 13. You're in and you things that are really easy to picture. Mm -hmm. So just your hometown, your best friend, and then the event. How would it have happened? And so she's sitting there visualizing. And she just, she doesn't say anything for the first five minutes. And then she goes, blue sky. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a blue sky. That was my first detail. That was the blue sky detail. And that was definitely, definitely just the beginning because over the next two interviews, so second and third interview, these, these memories just got increasingly embellished, increasingly embellished, to the point where the overwhelming majority of participants not only came to accept the notion that they'd done these crimes or these emotional events, which we'd also implanted, but they also gave us dozens and dozens and dozens of details so right. they gave us a huge amount of details. Because
0: so you, you had a really high standard for what you would consider a false memory, right?
1: We did, yeah. So you had to have at least 10 details. You had to remember who, what, when, and where. So where it was, who you were with, when it happened, etc. And there was almost always, emo- so multisensory components, as we called them. So you could hear things in the memory. They could feel things in the memory, taste things in the memory, smell things in the memory. Not that everybody had each of these, but they had about the same levels for these things as they did for their true memories. So that was really fascinating.
0: So what what percentage of the people generated this this false memory? What percentage of people did you implant the memory of a crime?
1: So we had 60 participants in total. 30 of these had the crime condition and the other had an emotional memory condition. And 71% of those who we'd told had committed a crime came to believe it and came to form these false memories.
0: And what kind of crimes were they?
1: Assaults, assault with a weapon and theft. And all of them were with police contact because <laughs> that's how we, we told them that they the police had contacted their parents, which is how their parents knew about it.
0: So, uh, I mean, uh, I'm imagining these are just, you know, uh, co- these, these are college students who are just strolling around, feeling good about life. <laughs> and then, and then within, within just a few, um, uh, minutes with a with the clever psychologist they were convinced they had assaulted someone with a weapon when they were younger <laughs> that's so terrifying <laughs> to know that that's possible it's uh,
1: enlightening let's let's use the word enlightening okay it's
0: it's <laughs> it is terrifying and enlightening it, it is i mean um and it was so easy to do and that and, you know you, you use non some non-techniques and some of your own uh uh you know clever um uh ideas as well and um the, the implications seem, you know, enormous for this. Uh, I'm sure that, that this is like a, a big part of um, where you guys are thinking too. You know, what is it, what are the implications in your mind of what you've discovered here when it comes to things like police interrogation and confessions and um, even, you know, things like repressed memories where uh, people, you know, remember something bad happened to them as a child and then that becomes a legal issue and uh, all sorts of things like that. What, is, what do you think are the implications?
1: implications. So <laughs> the implications are clearly for law enforcement that if you are going to talk to people about their memories, which is a thing that you'll commonly find them doing, <laughs> that you need to make sure that you're not using misinformation. So misinformation is saying that for example, you have a fingerprint of them at the scene or you know about something they've done at the crime uh, crime scene or during the crime and then telling them about it. So just like I said, I know that you assaulted someone with a weapon. That's misinformation. And telling them they did something they didn't do. And that can quite easily be spun into more, especially when you use things like, well, these poor memory retrieval techniques, such as visualizing it, if you will, fantasizing about it. Um, And yeah, closed-ended questions, even open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. So what's amazing is that this study actually used the status quo of um, appropriate police interviewing for the interview itself, not for the memory retrieval technique. But for the interview itself, it was all, tell me everything you remember. It, was, it wasn't particularly leading. So leading questions, of course, we already know have huge potential to um, distort reality or distort memory accounts. But my research is showing that maybe even open-ended questions Maybe even questions that don't seem threatening, that seem quite neutral, in and of themselves can have the potential to facilitate these false memories mm-hmm. as well. So it really challenges the notion of well, what do we do now?
0: Right, I know. <laughs> so uh,
1: how do we ask any questions?
0: And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. It's been said that we should surround ourselves with people who are smarter than us, benefit from their knowledge, keep ourselves challenged. And that's why I love having unlimited access to the great courses plus. And I keep encouraging you to sign up, too, because you learn from award winning professors and experts about whatever interests you whenever you want. The Great Courses Plus has engaging, on-demand video lectures in thousands of different topics. And they're easy to fit into your schedule because you can watch them anytime, at home, at the gym, on a break at work, start and resume them from any device. Now, I just watched their course, Games People Play, Game Theory in Life, Business, and Beyond. And game theory is the scientific study of interactive, rational decision-making. And it has proven instrumental in helping us understand how... Human Beings Make Decisions. Out of the 24 lectures in this course, the one that has a lot of relevance right now is number 20, all about voting. Game theory shows that no matter how you present the choices of candidates, voters will in some way be influenced by how that stuff is presented. There's no completely fair way to do it. And after this course, you will know which ways are more fair than others. I want you to sign up so you can start streaming courses like this right now. And here's what you can do. As one of my listeners, you will immediately get a free month of unlimited access to all the Great Courses lectures you can fit into your brain. All you have to do to start that free month is go to com slash smart. That's com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Which is good because, I mean, uh, all of our, so much of our legal system was created, you know, it's pre-scientific. It's, 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 uh, before we even <laughs> had these, before we even had the entire field of psychology, we were, we, had, we came up with things like juries and, uh, and, uh, you know, testimony and, 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 so, and many of these in, interrogation techniques. Um, so it's fantastic that you are, you and other scientists are doing stuff like this saying like, well, maybe we should completely, re, you know, reboot this thing because, I mean, your study, when you read through it, you're like, this sounds a lot like what I've seen in like, you know, crime dramas where they go and they, (laughs) you know, they go interview the people who the person knows and then they go um, talk to eyewitnesses. And then finally, you know, they put them under the white light and say, this is what we know. This is what people are telling us. Why won't you tell us the truth? You know, uh, in your mind, do you think that there are, um, there are people right now who have delivered false confessions that they truly personally believe that they did, but they did not do those things.
1: Definitely, definitely, definitely. But, uh, in terms of applying my study directly to these kinds of contexts, I mean, there are a number of differences between my study and reality, if you will. Sure. First of all, it's unlikely that police would want to generate a false memory. They might want to generate a confession, but they probably don't understand that sometimes the way that they're getting that is through a false memory. But I'm intentionally not just trying to get a confession, but I'm trying to get them to internalize it. I'm trying to get them to come up with these details, which, again, I would argue is fundamentally different than the goal from the outset that any any reasonable police officer should have. So that that's a difference. But, yeah, I mean, the techniques themselves. And I think that actually being friendly, this is something that's also underexplored, I think, because I was really friendly to my participants. And just like in life, I think people are more likely to help out and do well and try harder for someone who they like. And so if you have a really friendly cop and you're an eyewitness or potential eyewitness to a crime and they're being great and nice to you and asking all these kinds of questions, you might be more likely to generate false memories, more likely to give them details than if they're being really hostile and aggressive. Mm -hmm. So being friendly could actually be a risk factor, (laughs) Uh, which which is interesting.
0: That's so amazing, and you know, uh, I I wonder about what our lives are going to be like as we move into a future where more and more of of our experiences are recorded, and more and more of um you know our public interactions with with each other are witnessed by you know uh, cameras, and and that we have a more detailed estimation of our memories because we've saved things with our phones and they're in our social media. So like we we're entering a new era of augmented memory, um. And it's, it's, it's a really, it's, a, I think we're really developing as a, as a species, a new relationship with memory itself. And so your research is really important when it comes to that new relationship, I think.
1: Yeah, the new relationship. I mean, there has been some research that has looked at whether or not things like social media help or hinder our memory performance. And so far it seems like it does a bit of both <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because of course you're also the way I like to talk about Facebook. And I mean made fun of all over the interwebs is that facebook is the best version of you right yeah and so the way we represent ourselves especially in social media might actually lead to positive distortions in memory in that totally. you're only filtering and only totally. recording and documenting the best things the things you want to remember totally
0: it's like a reality and, show but just you know, yeah, just for you of your own life yeah, yeah.
1: Your it's um, so.
0: your your own PR campaign. It's totally.
1: <laughs> your own PR campaign and also but I mean that can actually have a positive effect, not necessarily on accuracy of memory, but on um really focusing on the good things in life. That's true. So, for for happiness more than for memory. Wow. So yeah. uh,
0: you are you're gonna put all of this into a book, right?
1: I am. So
0: tell me a little bit about that before we before we uh have to depart. Tell me about this book project.
1: So I'm working on a book with Penguin Random House called The Memory Illusion, and they saw an interview that I'd given in in a newspaper in London here, and they found it really interesting to see kind of like all the things we talked about, how just how malleable memory can be. And so this book, so The Memory Illusion, Why You May Not Be Who You Think You Are, really delves into everyday memory errors. Such as forgetting a, a name or a phone number, and moves all the way to how we can create completely absurd or seemingly absurd false memories of things such as alien abductions, of violent crimes, of impossible and highly implausible memories. Mm-hmm. And so it really takes the reader through everything from tiny everyday memories and builds up because these big memory errors or really just cumulative effects of these tiny memory errors that we experience regularly.
0: Wow. That's going to be awesome. Uh, when do you think that'll be around? Is it sometime this year or next year?
1: Next year. So it's expected to come out in spring of or early 2016.
0: Okay, cool. Um, maybe we we can get you back then, or, or at least I will definitely tell people, go get this book. So, um, <laughs>
1: sounds good. Um, I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, Tell me, um, so for everyone who's heard this and they're like, I want to keep up with this, uh, this person forever, how could they find you on the internet and keep up with you?
1: They can find me through my university. Since
0: doing this interview, she now has a website. It's drjuliashaw.com. Dr. Julia, Shaw. Dr. Julia, Shaw. Dr. Julia Shaw.
1: And I'm working on a website as well, but it's not up yet. So okay. soon, hopefully, I'll be more Googleable.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. I am so glad you're one of these people out there who is uh, you know doing this kind of work and that uh, and I love that already the world is like, "Hey, what's she doing so that they'll keep up with you in the future." So this is um, this is great, and I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Oh, yeah, well, thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Go to boingboingpodcasts.com for more great podcasts like this one. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or youarenotsosmart.com to get all the previous episodes including show notes and extras and stuff you might not have found. Go to Patreon and become a patron of the show to get extra episodes, extra content and all sorts of other cool stuff that's patreon.com slash you are not so smart next episode should be all about reddit about change my view about a community there and how scientists are studying it the founder of reddit will be our guest on the show among other people i think you will really dig this episode i've had so much fun putting it together find us on twitter at not i'm on twitter at david mcraney you can also find us on facebook at you are not so smart okay back to writing this book oh can't wait